The dawn of a new age is upon us. The age of Aquarius is here. And as our chakras realign and our soul wolves regain their strength, I like to use these first moments of the new year to take in some healing ritual baths. I love to submerge myself in a $4,000 Japanese soaking tub and just forget all my worries and cares, like how my wife could afford to buy a tub such as this. We talked about small presents for the holidays, and then Galinda surprises me with this under the renewal altar. I said, seems like we should probably take care of some debt instead of owing more to the credit card companies, but as the tub filled with warm water, she pressed her large, soft fingers against my lips, touched her forehead to mine, and said, soak. And I did. As Galinda filled the tub with white rose petals, liquefied frankincense, slices of old pumpkin, pine needles collected from the discarded trees on the sidewalk, pink salt shaved from the lantern we keep near the front door to cleanse the energy of visitors who must also take off their sandals before entering, and an Argentinian quartz crystal that I did not know was in there until I sat down. And like that shocking surprise, I think it's time to explore the unexpected. Let's open up the portal that leads us to the eternal new age that exists in the deep night. Oh, friends, it's me, Dale Seaver. I'm so pleased to be with you this evening, fulfilling the role of guide, guru, and garrulous gal pal. As we traverse this next hour of regrets and revelations, we come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus, where it has never not been the year of the metal rat, the dissolving, slowly melting metal rat. I trust you have returned from visiting families with a new perspective on your current situation, because really, aren't you glad you moved away? There's nothing for you there. Even the tiniest of New York studio apartments above a CBD dispensary crawling with black mold and a leering super named Lester is better than trying to make a go of it as a dental hygienist in a cul-de-sac surrounded by people you went to high school with. Think of the crushing amount of comfort you would be in, the worry you would never experience, the sheer predictability of it all. No, thank you. To feel alive is to always be teetering on the edge of crippling debt and convinced you should be doing something more in your life slash love slash career and never sure if an empty subway car is a good thing or the worst thing. Usually, it's the worst thing. So happily back in New York, I'm thrilled to bring you the first episode of this new year. When I saw that my guest today was going to be at SF Sketchfest and happened to be making a swing through our fine city here in New York first, I had to reach out, see if she was available for a visit to the deep night, and she was. The Edinburgh Fringe Festival has birthed so many great artists and comic legends that I was eager to talk to someone who had done the festival many times and thrived in doing so. Tiff Stevenson is an actress and a comedian who has appeared in The Office, White Gold, and uh, uh, many others. She was a series regular on hit shows such as the BAFTA-winning People Just Do Nothing, which is uh, available on Netflix, also on the BBC. Maybe you could combine the two. I don't know how the cables work. Uh, also on Game Face, uh, which I've never seen, but I bet it's great. 
She's taken five solo stand-up shows to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Her 2017 show, Bombshell, received a slew of four- and five-star reviews. That's about as good as you can get. And her latest show, Mother, debuted at the Edinburgh Fringe this past summer and was again among the most positively reviewed shows of the festival. I'm telling you, she's on to something. As a stand-up and radio-TV personality, Tiff is a regular on British shows, such as The Bugle, Drunk History, Mock the Week, 8 Out of 10 Cats, which I do want to check out. Different than the movie, I assume. The Blame Game, Breaking the News, and This Week. Uh, really, I know what two of those things are, but I look forward to knowing more. Tiff joined me for a talk in between YouTube yoga sessions, and I was so pleased she could come in and walk me through the experience of doing comedy in the UK, and specifically doing The Fringe. And we can't help talking through a slight feeling of helplessness in the wake of major world events, but as Tiff says, comedy is more urgent now than ever. So let's go urgently now to my conversation with Tiff Stevenson. Tiff Stevenson, <laughs> how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I feel like I'm on New York, New York's kind of energy. You're as in, in the I'm group. slightly tense, yes. but I'm passionate and I'm going to get stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the New York energy, right? It, it definitely is. Oh, I watched Uncut Gems last night, so I am a bit stressed out still from that film. Is it is a thing that sets you on edge? I have not seen it. Uh, yes, and I think it's because I was sat at the front row of the cinema. It was quite overwhelming on the senses in terms of music and... And, and editing and, and also Adam Sandler's character, it's you're kind of entering into his world, which is uh, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I, so I'm a little bit on edge from that still. Is the front row your, your preferred seating? No, it was just what was left. <laughs> okay, well, that's pretty good for that film. It's yes. been out a couple of weeks, hasn't yes. it? Oh, it was packed. Packed, have to sit in the front. Yeah. My gosh. Would you go back again to see it a little bit farther back? I probably would. <laughs> yeah. I would probably cho- choose. I don't know. I'm going to go and see Parasite again because my my fiance hasn't seen that. I saw it last time I was in L.A. and then it stopped playing in London. Or maybe it's not playing until February. Um, and I kind of said to him, you have to see this film because it's one of the most incredible things I've seen in years. So. By all accounts. Yes. Yeah. Is the fiance thing a new a new thing? Uh, no. <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we got engaged at Christmas, but not this Christmas gone and not the one before. It was like, we've been together tw- nearly 13 years. Yeah. So so we kind of got engaged just to shut everyone up, really. Um, <laughs> he uh, he asked me Christmas Day and he wrapped the ring up as a gift and I had to say yes or I didn't get a present, which is very <laughs> Scottish. He's just tried to double down on an engagement ring and a Christmas present. So. I <laughs> see. Well, you know, we share a love of Scotland. Yes. Uh, I've been there a number of times uh, uh, and uh, my grandfather's family from Scotland. Uh, which Mine is, too. Oh, you see there? Yeah. <laughs> he was, uh, there I think they were uh, uh, sellers in the fruit market in Glasgow or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Selling a bit of, uh, bit of fruit that's in the market. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's oh, right. A, Ouija, a Ouija. I'm trying to think of a Ouija fruit seller. <laughs> uh, do you want an apple, a couple of bananas? Get it up, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there it. you go. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> um, there is a fruit seller outside my local station in North London who um, who just says plums. <laughs> you want a couple of plums? Which obviously in the UK, I don't know if here are euphemisms for testicles. <laughs> I have not heard it. <laughs> He's got a set is. of plums on him. Yeah, that would be. So I feel like it's pointed. You want some plums? All right, love. 
couple of plums, <laughs> couple of plums in your mouth. <laughs> Fruit sellers, they can be very aggressive. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> I'm descended from them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't like to put descended and, uh, you know, testicles, testicles in the same, in the same thought, sentence. But, uh, <laughs> there we are. Actually, my dad's Scottish, but yes, my grandfather and my, actually my, my grandmother, so that's her side of the family. We're from St. Andrews. And my dad was born in Presswick. And my fiance is from Presswick, so that's weird. Yes. So it came full circle. I saw that maybe the tree collides at some point. <laughs> yeah, hope not. <laughs> oh, God, I hope not. But there's something to it, isn't there, in the Scottish character? Some kind of um, a warm humor beneath the stern presentation. Not to generalize, but yes. I like to generalize. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, there's a, especially with my fiance, there's a... Um, there's a stoicism to him that is quite, he's quite stoic, but he's very funny in kind of like a, a deadpan, blunt way. Yes. He has a very different type of funny to me. And actually I do, um, on the Bugle podcast, it's a bit of like Inception, podcast into podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, I sometimes do something called Scottish Boyfriend Explains a Hing, which is where he takes uh, a huge news story and breaks it down. Uh, so that the listeners can understand it. And then I just try and read it as him. He writes it. I try and read it as him, but it's always, it's quite, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes he'll write it very colloquially and I'll struggle and that's part of the fun. <laughs> right. Well, that brings up a, a, another issue I wanted to talk about because uh, maybe you were like me. You think, okay, I've saged the place. Uh, I've done my Reiki healing sessions. Uh, I've cleaned my meditation trousers. Are we in L.A. now? <laughs> 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 I wish, uh, but we, uh, you know, we're we're ready for the new year. We're prepared. We have a little bit of hope, maybe. And then January second, maybe you open Twitter, you look at the news, and it just collapses. Yeah. And you think, gosh, uh, how how are we going to get through this? And then the second thought to me is, uh, how do you do comedy at this moment? It is it, it feels inadequate sometimes, just in the face of of fires and war and well, I mean the end of the world it feels like yeah and that's why we were saying maybe the like watching an award show or something <laughs> uh, seeds this doubt or fuels this doubt a little bit more for for me I think it makes comedy more important than ever actually yes but I think that there's something about silliness and look I am someone who touches on social issues in my comedy and always have and if it's working how I want it to work it's social political and personal however I do worry that comedians are entering into this that's the kind of comedy I've always done but I've always tried to keep it on the side of funny yes but I think always the funny is the first thing right and then if I'm telling my story within that I like to tell a story hopefully it's the allegories and metaphors are like shrouded enough that you don't know necessarily all the time the messages that I'm giving like that's what I think good art is is if I have to say what it is it's sort of failed yes but if I tell you the story and then what you get from that in stand-up is you're like oh the message is this then that's great I'm just I'm kind of worried at the moment that comedians are turning into these kind of self-flagellating martyrs uh-huh. And I thought it this morning because I think I saw, well, obviously because I watched the Golden Globes last night and that's actors, that's a different thing. But I, you know, I'm kind of seeing comedians comment on stuff and there's this kind of thing, oh, it's so stressful for me at the moment because, oh God, like I care so much about climate change or this or that or the other. And I'm like, just the job is jester and jape and, you know, be smart. <laughs> Pat, t take those ideas and those thoughts and... Yes put them out there in a way that is, is, is insightful and clever and funny because people do need funny. 
We do. <laughs> more than more than ever. <laughs> but I did true. think with the Golden Globes, I, it did sort of get to a point last night where I was like, is everyone going to do a TED Talk? Because <laughs> right. this is a bit insane. And then I can see, and I'm an actor myself, but I can see the other side of it of like people just watching this, just going, why don't you fuck off? You're in Hollywood. Like telling me how to live my life, being some kind of, playing some game of kind of moral top trumps. Yes. Um, and the what I did find funny was... Um, Whacking Phoenix, who did kind of address the elephant in the room a bit and kind of go and then got cut off with music when he sort of went, Yeah, I mean, like we do need to chat. It's more than just talking about it. You know, maybe don't take your private jet to Palm Springs. <laughs> and that is directly aimed at the people who are in the room. Yes. You know, it's yeah. kind of, didn't Leonardo DiCaprio win an environmental prize and go to pick it up in a private jet? <laughs> like these are the kind of things. Sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who is. Um, who constantly complained at me about shopping in a, a shop that didn't do fair trade products. There's a shop at home called Lidl, and he was like, you shouldn't shop there. They they don't do fair trade products, you know. Buy my coffee fair trade because it's fair for the Colombian farmers. And I was like, yeah, but you do Coke. <laughs> like, how fair is that? For... <laughs> so, is there a fair trade? Uh, there, yeah, cocaine? I don't think it's fair trade when it's up their arse yeah. uh, <laughs> at the airport. I don't know how much fair trade is in that process. <laughs> Um, it's, it's organic, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I uh, depends on the wrapping, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I think I think what it is, is um, we kind of like to trade in these moral absolutisms and the idea, and, and comedians are supposed to, in a way, sort of be pieces of shit. <laughs> I think sometimes that we're like, just, I think the idea of saying we're better than. Yeah. So I think what I despair at at the moment, I guess, is is performative over demonstrative. And performative is telling everyone what to think and do and how to be. And it's a real problem on the left at the moment. It's currently eating itself. And that's what I say that as a left wing person uh, is telling everyone how they should do or being demonstrative and just being that good person and doing that in your own life. Yes. And demonstrative is someone like um, there's a hairdresser in the UK uh, in Manchester who decided that he was going to start going doing haircuts on the street for homeless people. Um, because he was like this little bit of dignity in a world that's really, really difficult and hard. And then he like trained one of the guys up and he now works for him. And I was like, that's demonstrative. That's someone going out into the world and making a change in the best way they know how. Not someone trying to cancel someone else on Twitter or telling someone that they think the wrong way or, you know, that they're racist because they voted one way in the UK. Like if you voted Brexit, there was a lot of like, well, you're racist. Right. You know, yes. and then you go to the north of England and people voted Brexit because they were told the money would go into the NHS. Right. Like when you see people interviewed, you know, because they, someone said it on the side of a bus, which is a whole other, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Boris Johnson well, and Nigel Farage. I, I always trust the bus. Yeah, you've got to trust the bus <laughs> messages. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit ranty, but I do think we're at an absolutely critical point in in society where we just, we need to, um, I don't think people want to listen when other people tell them that they're idiots. Yes. So you try to avoid that within the work that you yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to as best I can. I try and present some evidence almost like a and kind of go look at this scenario and what do you think about this and have you thought about it in this way? And um you know, that that's that's the idea, I think. Well, you know, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and and in in being a sort of you have been controversial in certain ways, or some people have viewed you in, in such yeah. a way uh, because of uh, maybe I don't know being outspoken on certain issues. Yeah. Uh, and so you've had to you ha- you have to toughen the skin with that. Is that true? Yeah. How do you get through? I mean, I have one bad show from ten years ago. I still think about. <laughs>
I'm a Libra. I'm sorry. I'm a Libra. Oh, well, see, I knew. <laughs> I knew we would get along. I'm all about balance. There we go. Yep. If there's one thing that they say about Libras, it's balance, isn't it? And I am... I am about that. I don't like when we kind of, you know, I'm always searching for some kind of harmony. Yes, me too. Me too. I love the balance. And it's similar to the Gemini who will be like kind of extreme in one way or the other. But I'm always extreme this way and then I have to run back and extreme it on the other side to keep it balanced. If I say I'll never do that, the next two weeks I'm doing that. Yeah. It's very consistent. (laughs) Sometimes I look at my Instagram feed and there's a lot of twos. Represented or things perfectly centered? Yes. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> That's who I am. Um, uh, but you've had to toughen your skin to get through it a little bit. Yeah. 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 I think so. I think um, what's interesting is the industry has changed. And I think definitely in the UK and definitely in how we treat women. And there are lots more women coming through now. But I think, God, we took a, like, we took a lot of hits. Sometimes, you know, like when a comic goes on early in the night. And it takes a while for the audience to get to their peak. And sometimes you're just kind of absorbing bullets for the other comics who are to come to get them to have a great... I feel like that with a lot of female comics that have come through in the last (laughs) 10 years. I was like, fuck, we took a lot of bullets to make it kind of easier. Just in, you know, in the UK. And it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think there's probably some of the same problems here. But the systems of coming through and... And uh, and the opportunities that are created, just we've all had to fight a bit, really. So I had to get resistant. I had to get thick skinned and I had to work three or four times as hard as my male counterparts to get into like places like the Comedy Store in London, even though I would do as well at the shows as they would be doing. Right. Um, because I was somehow seen as this kind of like risky, risky booking. And since actually, um, you know. I've since had a conversation with the guy who runs one of those clubs who was like, I'm really sorry. You know, what I did was out of order and I was unfair to you, which, you know, I can hold on to that for forever or I can just let it go and go fine. You know, yeah. I mean, we move on. That's rare. Yeah, it's rare to get an apology. <laughs> and But also I do feel like, especially in these times when I go, God, if someone who's been around that long and the person who runs that club, you know, he used to run strip clubs. So like... You know, like if he can kind of have a reckoning kind of in his older age and go, oh, actually, I was I was a bit unfair here and a bit unfair here. And let's try and get some more women in and let's try and open the doors, you yes. know, because we've been like knocking at them for ages, you know, and then there's a foot coming along. <laughs> going, Come on, you know, so I think there's been a societal change, but I do think, um, yeah, I think it's just you had to get hard. And I, I think that's I speaking to some of the female comics in in New York and LA when I've been there, I think it's a similar, well, LA is a very different scene for stand up, but I think there's a similar thing of lots of the women who've come through have had to be undeniable to get Mm -hmm. as many opportunities as maybe a kind of average dude. Yes. And and many are. Yeah. (laughs) My goodness. Uh, There is an undeniable, such a good word for it uh, because uh, I mean, I, there are many, many wonderful standups in New York, of course, but I mean, I, I think the women that are out there doing it, yeah, there's great, there's, there's running there's away with it. Jill James, there's you know, Maria Bamford, Jackie Cation, uh, uh, Laurie Kilmartin, Jenna Friedman. You know, yep. these are just ones that are coming. Um, Amy Miller, she's great as well. 
uh, Dolce Sloan. Like, there's loads of like amazing. Oh, Michelle Buteau, who's taken, so, who's yeah. been amazing for ages and has taken yes. so long to kind of. Now she's kind of everywhere and huge, and it's it's great because this has been the year of Michelle, I think. But that's you know that's that's Michelle now. I don't know. She might. I don't. I don't want to kind of say her age if it's not her age, but I feel like she might be in her early forties. Uh, or late 30s. Anyway, look, the the point is, you know, it's taking or someone like my friend Desiree Birch in the UK. Yeah. You know, she's in she's in her early, early 40s. It's taken that long for women to get to that. Yes. Kind of stage. You almost feel like we need like back opportunities <laughs> going back, going like six years ago. You should have given this woman her own show. Why right. hasn't that happened? And in the UK, you know, we've got Catherine Ryan, Roisin Connerty, um, you know, coming through. Sarah Pascoe's got her own show now as well. Like, but it's it's just taken such a long time to get to that point. And then there's loads of new women coming up and bubbling through and 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 doing great stuff as well. There, but it's just yeah, I feel like that's taken a long time. But they are so ready <laughs> once they get there. Right, right. And you know, maybe and audiences are ready and, too. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and and f- uh, forgive me, I'm not as familiar, but I assume that the system is kind of the same uh, in the UK and that you have to go through the, maybe you have to do alt spaces or something and then like prove yourself in one of these yeah. bigger clubs as a stand-up if, yes, if you want to do that. If you yeah. come the club, if you come through, the, I came through the clubs in the UK. Yeah. So I was kind of very club seasoned before I did TV. But mind you, I was doing TV as an actress. Yeah. But that was a separate thing. And when I first started, my stand-up was very separate to the acting. I was kind of deadpan and more one-linery because I wanted people to see that I could write jokes. I didn't want them to think I was just some actress giving it a go, which is kind of counterintuitive because why wouldn't you use every tool that you have available to yeah. you to make good stand-up? Um, so, uh, but I came through the clubs. I did the open spots. I did the weekend rooms. I, I did all of that, which is kind of why, <laughs> like, you know, I'm doing a different thing here. I've kind of done that thing at home and now I tour. Yeah. Um, so here it's about hopping up and seeing who I can win over and like, you know, gain some people who might want to come see the hour show really. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I did that. I came through that route and that's where it kind of, I think in the UK, when we start out as open spots, as new open, you call it open micers here. We call it open spots. It's probably about a 50, 50 split in terms of men and women, Mm. but just men got the progression to paid spots so much faster that women just couldn't afford to stay in the game. So they either dropped out or diversified or kept going and if you come from, if you don't need to pay rent or you live with your parents or you come from a rich family, these are all the things. And that's that's not gender specific. That's across the board. That's a that's a class thing and an opportunity and privilege thing. But there was definitely a kind of area where you're there kind of going, oh, you know, my male colleague that I came up with is doing a weekend at the comedy store and that pays like a thousand pounds more or less. So what's that like 15, 1200, 1300 bucks? to do Something. five shows yeah. on a weekend, which is in the UK, the the club circuit was very much like you could have a living just doing that. If you just did stand up 20 minute spots in the clubs that I feel like that's kind of gone away a bit now. It's changed. We're kind of getting this American system a bit more, but, but you used to be able to come through and not just make a living, make a fucking good living hmm. from like going in and doing weekends and taking a couple of grand and then during the week, doing a few others, then doing some corporate hosting and, you know, that kind of thing. So that was a very... And so within that, there was a lot of men doing that circuit, doing very well, that became very protective of it. And then when women started breaking through, felt like something was being taken away from them, 
And the same with television in the UK. You know, they had to put a rule in at the BBC to have at least one woman per show on a panel show. Shows that I do, like Mock the Week, you know, yeah. or um, Have I Got News For You, or, you know, like No More Mannels, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, so it's been a very long, I find frustratingly slow change, um, but it is it is happening. But yeah, we did we did the same routes. You come through, you do five minutes, then 10 minutes, and then you get progressed from 10 minutes to 20, and 20 is the paid you know, um, and then I ran my own room as well. I have a new material night called Old Rope, which I think we're trying to start one here in New York and one in L.A., oh. um, which is comics getting up with their notepads and their books. And the risk is in the material rather than the comics. So all of the comics are very established. Yeah. But they're trying new ideas. Yeah. Well, that sounds exciting. Mm. And and where does the fringe come into this? Because you've uh, been certainly made a career of going to the fringe yeah. uh, in Edinburgh. Um. Well, I write all my shows at my old rope show in London. So okay. I'm not doing the Fringe this year because I did the show Mother last year and I'm I'm doing that a few dates in, in the States. So, uh, but, but what I have was a room every Monday night to try out new jokes and rework and rework and refine routines because there are certain routines that kind of... Um, in my show Madman, I had one about Jack... Da I had this whole routine about Jack Daniels. But it's very much kind of getting the beats of that routine right and making sure the intention is clear and the ideas behind it. And you could only do that by honing material on stage over and over and over and over. Right. So you work out a new hour, you know, and I've done nine hour long shows at the Fringe. <laughs> so I think it's good to take a good. year or two off. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but that's what I would do. I would write at Old Rope every week. So I would come up with a premise and then I'd go out and do my weekend shows. And then, you know, as I got further along, I would obviously go into the clubs somewhere like a Glee for a weekend and I'd do 20 new minutes. But you would, the audience wouldn't know there were 20 new minutes. Other comics are like, oh, I haven't seen that 20 before. Yeah. And it would be the new 20 from my show. But it it's just stage time and writing and writing and writing and then realising that an hour-long show is a very different beast to just doing the extended club set. Yeah, and you need to have something. It's a it's an art form, yes. and it's in in and of itself. And I remember early doors. The first time I think I came to New York, and uh, did shows and and met people like Chris Gethard and Mike Babiglia. Watching one of Mike Babiglia's and thinking, oh, that's very much like what we do for an Edinburgh show. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really a thing here. People didn't get. People go, oh, it's a one man or a one woman show, which makes it kind of sound like a play. But you're like, no, this is stand up. It's it's storytelling stand up. And then Chris Gethard, I think, saw and I remember saying, oh, you should definitely do Edinburgh. Like you should do a show about, you know. And he did do a show about his depression in right. in, in Edinburgh. I was like, that's the perfect place to take that kind of hour and have that have that discussion. Yes. So. Um, and the experience of the Fringe is at this point sort of old hat uh, to you but i mean uh, it's a different kind of environment right it's a, it's it's not having a theater and doing a one man like chris yeah. had his show near here yeah. and it was there and you went and go like a theater kind of yes. a thing yes yeah uh, but there i mean you're competing with how many other hundreds of shows that are like that i think there's like 3000 shows <laughs> yeah, okay or something <laughs> i can't remember if it's 3000 comedy shows or 3000 shows with a thousand of those or comedy taking up like a huge chunk of the um because it can be quite lo-fi depending on what you want yeah. to do and every bar backroom porter cabin becomes a venue in edinburgh 
Yeah, it's so not, a shipping it's not that big. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> For 3,000 shows or whatever to happen. Yeah. That's every back room and living room and downstairs space and weird crypt that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the beauty of Edinburgh is that it's like the open in golf terms for anyone that plays golf. Yes. Meaning that anyone can enter. Yeah. There is no curating. It's not a curated festival like some of the others, um, which is to its benefit and its detriment because it means that absolute dog shit can end up on there but it also means someone who might not have got an opportunity anywhere else can come here and say hey i'm doing this work come and see it right but it the problem with that is it's now becoming untenable if you for the amount of money that it costs now because it used to be the fringe would be a fringe festival where you would go and work up a new hour of material that would be where you'd write your new hour and you can do that now if you're a big star and you charge less for a ticket and you go and you go hey i'm workshopping this i don't want reviewers in they'll probably come in anyway though right. you know but you could go and go i'm going to write an hour over the course of a month but if you're a newer act trying to break in and you don't have money it's still going to cost you a few thousand for your accommodation for the month uh, another thousand pounds to get yourself in all the brochures and everything else and, you know, then flyers or your print costs and everything. Else. You're talking about spending £6,000 before you've probably set foot on a stage. What's that, $9,000, $7,000? So it's, n- it's, not, it's not a small amount. Yes, yes, that's a decent, uh, you know, yeah. so, see a return for it. And especially if American comics are coming over. I have offered, actually, I was speaking to the improv about this, I have offered to do a kind of talk for any of the American comics that yeah. are interested in, because I've done it in every way it's possible to do it. Yeah. So I've self-produced. I've had like Live Nation produce me. I've had huge producers. I've had, I've done deals direct with venues. I've had huge posters. And then I've done a year where I've not bothered <laughs> to do huge posters. So I've kind of done it every way you can do it. Um, and uh, it, it's phenomenal. There's nothing like it. I do love it. I love its energy and I love its possibility. But, you know, then sometimes, like everything, it can become about there's the comedy award and it can become about that and it can become about which shows critics are talking about before the thing even starts, which is kind of disheartening to a lot of comics if you go, I've got this amazing show and it feels like before we've even gone, they've decided, you know, who it is that's going to be the person that wins this award. Right. Um, And I'm sure they'd be like, well, no, it's not. But, you know, the kind of interest and the... You can't help that. It's like a, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a court case. Like if it's in the news, right? you know, people then people start, start getting their get prejudice yeah. or their ideas about what that is. So I think if stuff is talked about a lot before it gets to the fringe, it gets kind of more coverage, more interest, more reviews and everything else. So it's not without its problems. However, it is, it is a phenomenal you know, fun experience and a great way of kind of going, here's my art, here's my work. I've written this hour. And weirdly, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more in America considering so much of the television stand-up or streaming stand-up is geared towards an hour. Here's my yeah. hour special. Yeah. And that's what everyone's doing in Edinburgh. Right. So then, but then in America, conversely, it's like everywhere seems to be, especially in LA, five, seven, ten-minute spots. I think I, I think I did like 20 at the improv when I closed a show one night. But like everywhere seems to be these like five, 10 minute things. And then people are putting out hours. And I'm like, how does that happen? <laughs> right. You know. Right. Well, a lot of the folks that go over to, to do the shows, that hour does become something. 
that gets taped, that gets put into circulation. I don't know why L.A. is like that, but L.A. is a mysterious place. <laughs> well, New York as well, everywhere's pretty short spots. Yeah, There's but that's because a... you got to get to the next thing. Yeah. That makes sense to me. L.A., you should, if you're there, my God, do an hour. Well, that's what I've, <laughs> that's all, what I've been we doing. We all paid to valet. Yeah. We're all here. <laughs> you might as well. Well, that's what I did in L.A. But uh, interestingly, I did... Um, uh, Dan Soda was at the Fringe last year with me and he was like sort of working in his HBO special, which I think has just come out. Uh-huh. So, you know, sometimes people, if they know in advance, that's a great way to just bed the hour in. Yeah. Is to just do it 25 nights in a row. And also, I do think that if you want to be one of the greats, if you want to be amazing, you've got to do a Fringe because there's nothing that will make you as good as doing that. To do, from the nights to where it's full and you've had a great review and the audience love you and you're sailing because it's your crowd to the two people have shown up and it's like sex in a loveless marriage where you're like, this is going to happen. Neither of us want it to happen, but it's going to happen. And I think all of those help shape you as a comic and turn you into, you know, some something better. Just doing it, that having that much stage time, just getting up, doing that hour... And then you pop off and do all these other late night spots at yes, the Fringe and yeah. stuff. And, you know, there's stuff like Late and Live and Spank and, you know, um, Set List, which was there for a while. You know, just people pushing themselves, testing themselves. And you get to see people step outside of their comfort zone. And I think that's great and exciting. No, well, that sounds terrific. I've been doing this uh, 20 years or so performing. And only recently have I really started thinking other than sketch fest to really do festival stuff and so last year i did boise and it was wonderful i had no idea what was going to happen in boise idaho but there (laughs) it was in a comedy club against the brick wall cosmic forces aligned things were okay i'd like to do more of that were you on ley lines yeah, yeah I think I must have been, that river flowing through there. Speaking of that, do, do and being intrigued by Scotland and its great history, and maybe there's some druids or old stone movers and that kind of thing, do you get into the mystical side of, of life? Did you see, seek that out in Los Angeles? Oh, well, I did know that every Airbnb rental I went into, there was one of those pink crystal lamps oh the I think Himalayan they were part of the agreement Himalayan yeah, salt lamps. that's right I think they're part of the tenancy agreement <laughs> so there has to be one of those um I've seen a lot of crystal shops I mean I definitely unlike a lot of people in LA who seem to get into them in their 20s and 30s as a teenager I went through a massive crystal phase this is what we're talking about yeah, that's so, what I was wondering yeah, the ma- yeah I went through a massive crystal phase and I still have some and I still have um I have some turquoise uh that I brought uh, from a man who was from the Zuni tribe. Sure. Uh, First Nation. Like, and he had all this, so he was Zuni and he was something like, I have that. And I, that's quite special. Yeah. Um, so I have, yeah, I have bits and pieces. I mean, maybe not so much as some of my, I think someone mentioned this the other day, so this is not my quote, but I think literally every single female comic has had or is in a crystal face. <laughs> Is in a crystal phase. <laughs> I know Whitney Cummings burns sage yeah. before she starts a day of writing. Oh. I think anything that's like a ritualistic kind of cleanse or I think things that make you feel comfort or are special to you. I've got some tiger's eye, which my grandmother gave me. Very so I have nice. that, yeah. which is good for confidence. <laughs> you know, Needed. good for confidence. Yes. Um, but yeah, so I have, um, what I have at the moment... Um, 
is the wicked uh the wicked queen from snow white i have a little uh back at the apartment i'm staying in i found it at a yard sale and it's just like a little plastic figurine like kind of disney figurine of yes. the the evil stepmother from from snow white and i keep that because my show mother is about me being a stepmother so she travels with me i see so there's my little you know so i sometimes have weird rituals and weird things but uh i do kind of I do believe there's a lot we don't understand. So I guess that, you know, that with Scotland has this kind of uh, druid, mystical kind of, you know, energy. When you've got things like the Brig of Doon, the Brig of Doon. Yeah. Like, oh, the, yes. you know, uh, and then there's, um, so where my partner is from is, is Burns Country. Oh, yeah. And uh, and that's the Brig is where... Um, uh, he was chased over. What? Which is the name of the poem by the witch on horseback? So he's trying to escape. Uh, yeah. So there's all this kind of ancient Celtic mysticism that's you know deeply embedded. Also, the the, the history in Scotland, you can't not kind of feel this kind of mysticism from because it's literally in the walls. Yes. You know, sometimes yeah. you can be doing a show and you're in like a cave, <laughs> <laughs> and the walls are wet and right. have been wet right. for like you know so there's this kind of um there is a kind of magic to edinburgh um but also weirdly even if it's not during the festival i've sort of passed through edinburgh before sometimes to go further to go further sort of east or or sort of north from from the fringe and i still feel sick when the train pulls into edinburgh edinburgh waverley because there's that sense of expectation and knowing a festival's about to start. Oh, yeah. You have a sort of muscle sense memory that yeah. uh, something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of... Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of... I can't remember the name of the stone. My memory's terrible today. I think this could be jet lag. But there's a there's a kind of like a, a green stone that's a Scottish stone. So they have lots of crystal shops and lots yeah. of cool places like that in, in Scotland as well. And these, um, you know, uh, jewellery shops where you can get the marble, you can get crystals set into stone and but uh, i think la is peak peak crystal town yeah yeah although one thing i did notice in edinburgh the most recent time i was there a lot more cups made out of antlers oh than, yeah than there used to be <laughs> <laughs> yes. whatever happened in the last 10 years uh it really they really Deers amp- have come very much back into fashion uh, yeah yeah a lot of horn uh steins and things yeah there's a there's a there's a is a huge at the moment and they'll <laughs> go out of fashion and then it'll be something else like i don't know truffle pigs yeah, um right. <laughs> but i do feel like in la the crystal thing is a sense of i do think in los angeles everyone is searching for a thing this is yeah, why yes. you have like they're searching for some kind of meaning and purpose and people tend to gravitate towards that place so whether it's searching for a dream or searching for meaning and then that the people then there's scientologists yeah. You know, I've thought about getting into it just for the parking, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they got a lot of the big parking spaces. You want to see a show at UCB, it's right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um so they've got Scientology, don't they? That you know, they have like you know, you can you can get into kind of like whatever religion or cult or thing. It seems like yeah, it seems like the like searchers, people who are searching end up in Los Angeles. 
And so that brings with it everything amazing and then also the problems that come with that. Sure, yes. And it is a it can be a crushing place to be, full of disappointment. And you think, gosh, what is it up to? It must be up to the universe. There's so much luck and timing and being at the right place. You might as well have a, you know, mantle full of rocks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, why not? Why not? Sure. Why sure. not? Why not? Well, also I think that's why I'm quite happy that I went there when I'm a bit older. I think it would have been really tough in my 20s. Yeah. Even though part of me is like, oh, I could have crushed here in my 20s because I was young and hot and vapid. <laughs> and now I kind of see a lot of everything. And, you, you know, some things once you see, you're like, oh, now I've seen that. Yeah. I feel kind of gross. Uh, but um, but in a way, it kind of allows you to maintain a healthy distance. I was talking to Jackie Cation about this when she moved. And she was like, you have to, I was told, you have to decide you're going to like L.A. And I did just decide. And I do enjoy the sunshine. That is the one thing, the vitamin D is like, you wake up and go, oh, I don't want to kill myself. Yeah. What a great day. <laughs> but I do see how yeah. you can kind of lapse into this kind of content, which is not necessarily as motivating. Because the weather's nice, you can eat nice and just kind of float around in L.A., whereas New York is much more like London, where you're like, i got to make something happen. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So um, they're just, they're different vibes, but I like them both. Jonathan Ames said to me, uh, you need to be ready. You, you need to be ready for LA. The time needs to be right. You go. It's time for LA now. Yeah. Because it's just a different pace. And he was so New York for so long. Uh huh. And he was like, and now it's here. It's just a different. You, it slows down. Oh, for sure. Yes. <laughs> and if that's what you want and you're ready for, then it's perfect. Right. If you like hearing no directly. Uh, New York is New the York. place. Yeah, in LA, there's the never know. You're that's... just you're just not here. The person will disappear. And you'll think, well, I guess that project's that's not happening. That's, yeah, that's, right. that's right. That's the magic. Where did they go? Hold they on to a quartz. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, speaking of making something happen in New York, and mm -hmm. uh, you introduced a lovely segue earlier, which I did not catch the train, but of the uh, stepmother, mm -hmm. this new show that's all about, uh, it's called Mother. Yeah. Yeah. And about, then now this <clears throat> hits close to home. <clears throat> uh, because I am myself a stepson and have been for a while. Um and I don't think I'm a great one. <laughs> Let me just say that. Um, how long have you been in the stepmother role? Um, so my stepson is 13 now. And I've been his stepmother since he was probably about nine months old. Wow. So 12 and a bit years since so he was a baby. Yeah. Kind of like a mother. Like a mother. Yeah. 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 But he's, as I say in the show, he doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't call me mom. He calls me Tiff because he has his mom. And also I'd never used the term stepmother until... Till about a year ago when I went, oh, stepmom needs a margarita. <laughs> and he just went, oh, God, that's going to be a catchphrase, isn't it? So, so yeah, I just I think the term has been quite damaging and derogative for a long time. So maybe I just didn't want to take that mantle. And also he was just like Tiff, you know, but it was what was really sweet was sometimes out of the mouths of babes because it can be quite a difficult job and you can feel like you don't get a level of recognition. And it's not that you're doing it for recognition. But it's a lot of negotiating because, um, <clears throat> you know, your opinion is considered to be the least important, which is in a way sort of why I love stand up because it's all my opinion and it's really fucking important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but you're trying to negotiate, you're trying to kind of dodge landmines a lot of the time. And actually, just at Christmas, just gone, my my niece, who's like five and a half, um, it's from my fiance's sisters, uh, my fiance's brother. And his part, his fiance, so their their um, their daughter came up and she said, whis whispered to me a secret. She went, "I know a secret." And I was like, "What's that?" She was like, 
you know, uh, Maceo, which is my stepson's name. She's like, Maceo has two mummies. <laughs> <laughs> so she, because uh, his mum had come up, there yeah. was a, you know, we had a family situation and stuff and there was a, there was a funeral. So it's been a little bit of a tough Christmas, but she was up and, and obviously my, my niece Sadie hadn't met her before. So she was like, oh, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah, right. I just know Auntie Tiff. So she was like, he has two mummies. And I was like, oh yeah, he does. <laughs> I just hadn't thought to say that myself in my head. Right. But out of right. the mouths of babes, of course, is, you know, they always kind of reveal this, this truth. Yes. Um, so he's a great kid. Very, very lucky. That's he's been very easy, you know. Um, yeah. He's wonderful. But, but the yeah. mom's still around and that's, <clears throat> that, that may help. Yes, the mum, the mum's still around, you know. And I, I was in the other situation where right. there isn't. And so you were punishing her for that. You're was. punishing your stepmom. Yeah. Still, are, still are. I don't know. I'm trying to come to terms with things, but there's a point at which you realize, because it's been some time, that I've now had her around longer than my actual mother. Right. Uh, mm, yeah. You know yeah. what is that? It's a, it's a tricky place to be, and I don't know that I'm good at navigating it. I thought I would be. I thought after 10 years I would be fine. I thought after 15 years it would be fine. 20 years, uh, I don't know. It still is a thing that has not been resolved. How old were you when she came into your life? Oh, around 20 or so. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, and was it amicable between your parents? Very, uh, but they, she, my mother passed, and then right. he was... Uh, uh, yeah, th- there and then right, suddenly right. So, yeah. she she was also there. Yes, uh, so you didn't want him to move on. Ultimately, is what's happened. Uh, p- perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I think. I think, and also, you're a fully formed human at twenty. Yeah, this it's not someone who's necessarily going to come in in a mothering role in that same way. They're probably going to try and be your friend, which I think a lot of the time is a good way for stepmothers to go. Yes, to not tread on <laughs> anyone else's toes, and that's difficult living in the shadow of a woman. Who will be, you know? I feel like I'm a therapist now, but like you, you will <laughs> canonize. <appreciate> <laughs> you you will canonize because it's your mother and you love her, and that's yeah. you know that's the woman who gave birth to you. So I think she's in a, a a difficult role. So I would my heart goes out to her a little bit because I I think it's it's terrain and also it's so entrenched <clears throat> this idea of stepmother being a negative thing when actually you can be this positive force and influence in a child's life. Um, and there are so many children being born and there's so many unwanted children and families just don't exist in the same way that they used to anymore. Everyone, there's not this 2.4. There's, you know, you can be an adoptive parent. You can be a gay couple that adopts. You know, you can be uh, a, a, a stepmother, a stepfather. You can be a father who mothers. These roles, they're not these ideas of what we have as traditional roles of families. Yes. And I think that's a really good conversation for society to have, to actually go, it's about, is the child loved? Are they feeling secure? Are they getting the right messages about the world? Yeah. And that's the most important thing, you know, I think. Yeah, and people live that, but they don't always uh, talk about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And agree with it. It's, it's it's something that, you know, you'll go into any situation, any city, any town, and somebody is making the best of what they have. Yes. And that is their family unit as they define it. But well, then if you try it... to say that this is a possible alternative for you, or I mean, they're mm. quick to judge some of these other things. You're like, well, this is happening in your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right here. It doesn't seem to be a problem there. Yeah. Anyway. It's blended. It's um, 
They call it blended family. They blended use that term, which yeah. I don't like because it makes us sound like a smoothie. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> very but, blurry. Yeah. <laughs> Look at Modern Family. I mean, that's a, that show is yeah. a kind of perfect example of kind of showing how these, you know, and also <laughs> just that there's a bit of kind of like science coming into it as well that men, women are not able to have kids as late as men can just, I mean, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's just had yeah. a couple of kids. So, you know, like second families happen and, th- you know, and so it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it becomes such a fiercely, I think sometimes women aren't honest with each other or how motherhood is portrayed mm-hmm. because I do think as well and I've, I'm someone who's taught publicly about this but I had a, a termination when I was 17 years old I got pregnant I think the choice to not be a parent is as difficult as the choice to and the responsibility of all of that that comes with it and now we are living in a world where there's too many humans <laughs> and the, the world can't sustain us and so then now there's lots of kids having this choice of going, kind of going as an environmental responsibility, do I want, do I want to have kids? Right. Do I want to bring kids into this world? They, these aren't easy decisions. They're often treated as if they're some kind of, which is the reproductive rights conversation that I find so frustrating, is treating it like women are buying a new pair of shoes. That that's yes. how we treat, uh, you know, oh, well, it's, I get them free at work. Why not? Hey, let's go for it, you know, because actually it's, 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 it's hard. <laughs> Yes, it's not a flip kind of decision. It's no, not something that you no, make lightly. It, yeah, yeah. And um, and also, you know, I do think we can canonize parents for literally having kids. <laughs> like, and then we view with suspicion women who don't have children. Yes. Uh, but we don't view men with suspicion. But then there are also men I know who then in their 40s, 50s and 60s just go, yeah, I'm just going to have a couple of kids. You know, and so, yeah, yeah, so I think, uh, I was just thinking as Cameron Diaz just had a baby, well, they said they they welcomed their daughter because she obviously wasn't pregnant. So however they did it is their business. Um, But she probably at some point needs to say, obviously, I didn't do it. Because what, what, what women get sold is in celebrity magazines and all of these kind of things is that a woman can get pregnant well into whatever age. And you go, yeah, that does happen, but it's, it's kind of rarer. So if right. you see a celebrity like Janet Jackson or someone like that having a baby at like 46, 47, you go, they've probably had fertility treatment or a surrogate or, and can you be a little bit honest about this? Because women are reading it thinking we have an infinite amount of time right. to be able to do this. And that's not the truth. Something else was involved. Yeah. Maybe and a I, crystal. Maybe a crystal, <laughs> maybe a jade egg up your vagina. Gwyneth yes. Paltrow sells them. Um, goop, you can get one on Goop. But, you know, just I think, and look, not everyone owes to anyone else, but I do think women need to be a little bit more honest with each other about these kind of, you know, sometimes, you know, I might still I might still have my own child. I might, I might not, but also I'm at an age where, you know, that becomes much more of a, um, what am I looking for? Uh work would need to happen I think (laughs) or I would need to actively you know and I've talked before about wanting to adopt and stuff like that you know like so these are these are all possibilities for me and I'm a bit of a late bloomer as well (laughs) in terms of get when I've got engaged and you know all the stuff career happening what wise in my life so um Jackie Cation has a great joke about this where she says all my girlfriends in their 50s 
say, um, you know, I feel ready to have kids now. I feel really happy with where my career is. And why can't I have, have a kid now? And she's like, because science. <laughs> um, I remember seeing her do that in, in Montreal and really laughing and kind of going, yeah, that's the reality of it. Like women are much more under a, a time pressure than than men are. Um, but weirdly, stepdads are not... Maybe, I guess there's negative connotations for stepfathers as well. I would think so. Um, I hope so. The, the trope <laughs> isn't evil evil stepfather yeah yeah well apparently the brothers Grimm had something to work out <laughs> yeah and i've been to castle i've been to their little museum oh have you and if i live there in castle i might have to invent some fairy tales too because <laughs> it's it is grim bleak they have a museum of death there which is about the mo- most exciting thing happening <laughs> the museum of death in hollywood i've been to that yeah it's got to be different no <laughs> <laughs> There's something about a German death museum that just There's really a word sets for that. things There's probably a word for <laughs> that, right? There probably is, yes. Um, but now the show that you're doing, this one, that's going mm-hmm. to explore the, the issues of motherhood, step being a stepmom, all that kind of stuff, is happening at Union Hall yes. here in Brooklyn Yeah. on what date? Uh, 10th of January. The 10th of January, coming right up. And uh, people can go find out about it on the Union Hall website, I assume. We'll post some stuff, yeah. links and whatnot. Um and then, uh, then where do you go from there? Um, I'm going to Sketchfest on the 17th. Okay. And I have NATO Green opening for me. And then I'll be doing Mother. So that's at the Swiss American Hall, I think. Oh, a lovely venue. Yes, yes. Yeah. I'm hoping people come. I don't know if enough people here know who I am or like my work. You can, I mean, if you're interested, you can go and look up the reviews. This is the bit I hate and cause, because my Englishness kicks in and because I think I'm a piece of shit. Um, there it was one of the best reviewed shows at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. So you can go and find those if you go on British Comedy Guide. You'll find the reviews for the show, and you can see if it's quite a lot of it is about you know uh, motherhood, what that is, what that means, reproductive rights, you know, um, and very funny, very funny class. It's about yes. class. Yeah, yeah. I realise after <laughs> saying we're all self-flagellating martyrs, <laughs> I've I've been quite serious during this podcast. Um, but um, yeah, like it's. Yeah, it's a funny show. It's a funny show. There's a lot of funny routines in it, you know. And because if I didn't laugh at a lot of this stuff, I'd fucking cry. So I may as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tiff, it's been such an honor to have you here. I wish you great success with both of these shows. I'll be uh, out there uh, at San Francisco. So bring some crystals. I'll bring some crystals, and we'll set things up. It'll be lovely. Um, (laughs) That's great. I hope I do see you out there, though. I will uh, come and see the show. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wasn't that something? If you're in New York, go see Tiff's show, Mother, at Union Hall, Friday, January 10th at 7.30 p.m. And if you're out in San Francisco, well, you get a chance to see it on January 17th at 10 p.m. at the Swedish American Hall with Nato Green opening. That's a solid show, I'll tell you that. And if you're in San Francisco, come see me. We're launching a new version of the show, a variety show inside a crystal shop, inside a theater for SF Sketchfest. Sounds confusing. Join us for Deep Night with Dale's World of Gems, featuring Arden Marine, Joanne Schinderly, Casper Hauser, Phoebe Bottoms, Andrew Rolfo, and me, with music from Zelma Stone. That's Sunday, January 19th at 10 p.m. I know that's a late show, but it's a holiday weekend, so live it up. Tickets are 20 bucks. It'll be at the iHeartRadio stage at the Gateway Theater. Uh, in San Francisco. Lots of fun to be had, and I hope that I'll see you there. I hope we make it to tomorrow (laughs) at this rate, but I remain optimistic. 
and you should too. In fact, it's wise to remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced and performed by James Bewley. Season 12 podcast icon illustrated by Lars Litaro. Deep Night Season 12 theme by Zach Gabbard. Music throughout the episode is provided by the talented roster at Haller Hills Farm in Ohio. Production studio space provided by Harvestworks here in New York City. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or tune in on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Thank you for listening, and this season, I encourage you all to leave your portals open. <laughs>